we go. Um, first off, I just want to say it's good to be together today here, church. It's good to gather in. And I want to start by saying, Rachel, I listened to your message from this week as I was putting together the podcast, and you crushed it. That was, we're not a like, they brought the word kind of a, but that was, I took notes. I put something, I, I, one of your quotes I put into my commonplace and just was like, that was so well crafted. And so um, when you speak here, it's a delight and, and you, I know, are a blessing to your students on campus. And so thank you for sharing last week. So we're just going to replay that, and no, I'm just kidding, but um, it is it is available online, and I loved, I just love that even though we are hovering over the fruit of the Spirit this summer, and probably this is the longest series you've ever had through that, if you're newer to Water City, welcome to Water City, where we are proud of being the longest series through small parts of Scripture, um, but I, I love that linking of 1 Corinthians 13 to uh, the growing of the fruit of the Spirit in our life and that it's not, in church world, it's so easy for folks who are gifted to rise to and be put in charge of things. And, and what a detriment that is actually for the character of the church and for the outward facingness of the church. Um, because character and charisma are not always the same thing. And so, um, yeah, so anyway, awesome job. And if you wanted to, you can get links to that off of watercitychurch.org. The podcasts are current, so if you wanted to just listen to the podcast or if you wanted to watch the video. So, um, all right, ready? Here we go. So in uh, his book called The Moral Intellect of Children, Harvard professor and Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Uh, Robert Cole writes this. He says, Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, character is higher than intellect. And then um, Cole goes on and says, Marion was a student of mine several years ago and much admired Emerson. She had arrived at Harvard from the Midwest and was trying hard to work her way through college. So she was cleaning dorm rooms of her fellow students. I don't know how you put yourself through college. Um, one of the jobs I had uh, was actually cleaning offices in, in uh, downtown Minneapolis when I was there, and so I can relate a little to this. And so she worked out for campus and helped uh, clean uh, rooms for students, and, and again and again, uh, she met classmates who had forgotten the meaning of simple things like please or like thank you, and no matter how high their ACT scores were, these were glaring things to her. And these other students also didn't hesitate to be rude or even crude toward her. One day, she was not so subtly uh, propositioned by a young man she knew actually to be very bright. So she quit her job, and she was preparing actually to quit school So full of anxiety and rage, she came to see this professor, Robert Cole. And she said, I've been taking all these philosophy courses, and we talk about what is true and what is important and what's good. Well, how do we teach people to be good? And I just thought, what a thing that is. So the answer to the question, according to the Bible, is not, more education or a better job or a better neighborhood or better friends. I mean, all those things kind of come into the mix. But uh, according to Scripture, it's the answer to that is conversion. And no one can learn to be truly good. For the Scriptures say only God is perfectly good. And the light of true goodness, though, dawns in the heart of every believer when God shines there. And so this morning, uh, we're continuing to soak through the words of the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church specifically in the area that's modern-day Turkey, uh, referred to as Galatia or the letter to the Galatians. This isn't one city or one—it's it's kind of a region. 
And there's a lot of things going on in this area, and there's kind of, even though it's easy to think of this as kind of uh, just old, old, uh, there's various cultures here. There's various things going on. There's various groups even within the church. The church has never been a place where everyone thinks the same, eats the same, listens to the same things, reads the same things. And actually, in the ancient world, it was oftentimes just as uh, tumultuous as it sometimes is in the modern world, where you had a slave over in one part of the sanctuary or in one part of the house church, and you'd have their slaves in the other part of the house church. And what did that mean? And how did they follow Christ together? And, and what did it look like for that story to begin to be transformed? And so Paul writing to the church in Galatia is, has a lot of things going on. But we've been looking specifically at Galatians uh, 5, 22 and 23 in the context of the bigger picture of chapter 5, which is not an easy chapter we saw a couple weeks back. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in uh, Galatians this morning, and then we're going to be a little bit in the Gospel of Luke. Actually, that's not true. We're going to be a ton in the Gospel of Luke, but I say a little bit, so I'm reminding myself to go fast. All right, where Galatians go? There it is. I've told you the story of the first time as a teenager I got to share on a Sunday night at my church, and I didn't reference, or I didn't put a note in all my Bible points, and so a vast portion of my sermon was looking for the page. It was really exciting. Here we go, Galatians chapter 5. How about you read this? Can you read this? Let's you read this. So I don't know how you grew up. I don't know if we've been in this for a while, so this isn't first uh, look at this. Uh, Maybe for you in your home, and I've seen this, and this isn't a bad thing. These were uh, actually somewhere in the house, these words as in examples of, of what it looks like to be shaped into the likeness of Christ that, um, that you saw love and you saw joy and you saw peace or and and you you went okay well this is what it looks like or you grew up in a Sunday school class where maybe these were uh, in a border around the room or you in youth group uh, had a youth pastor or a youth leader who dug in on this and really went wider maybe this is this is fresh stuff for you and this is a first pass on this these things, uh, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more uh, in, in the next couple weeks, the idea of this, but these are more than just your natural tendencies in life. Um, in his book, Galatians, for you, uh, Timothy Keller, uh, if you're looking for uh, just doing deeper Bible study in general places, the whatever for you is New Testament, uh, Tim Keller, are, are great user-friendly reads. But in Galatians for you, Timothy Keller, uh, former pastor of Redeemer Church um, out in New York City, writes, and he's talking about these, and, he, and he, he talks about these in a way that he says, you may look at these and go, I am naturally, um, good's maybe the wrong word, but you know what I mean. I'm naturally uh, good in, in a few of these. Uh, it, we all have folks in our lives who maybe are bubbly and full of joy and are quick to get to know people. And in, in my circles, I make I, I talk about those extroverts as otters. And you know who you are, otters. If you've been to our zoo, our otters are not otters, are they? They're always like hiding. We have introverted otters. They didn't get the memo. But being an extrovert, is not the same as having the fruit of the Spirit joy. Now, these aren't multiple fruits. This isn't pick and choose. Okay, God, this year I'm going to take a little bit of joy. Everybody who's anybody knows to not ask for patience. That's why we took it off the list. And re uh, <laughs> it's still in there. We just have different words for it. But... Okay, God, I'm going to take a little of these. Yeah, you can pray that way, 
But this isn't a sliding scale. I'm going to take a little more of this and a little less of this off of the buffet table of God's working in my life kind of a thing. This is, uh, this is a whole. And it's a whole because this is shown from who God himself is. God is full of love. In fact, Scripture says he is love, which is amazing and full of joy and full of peace and full of forbearance and kindness and goodness. And this is, this is who he is. He doesn't have to get up in the morning, which is a funny picture of God who never sleeps, but I'm going to be more joyful today. I've been a little grumpy to the world for the last. No, God is a God of joy. And we see that in Scripture and so when we're looking at these things and contemplating these things and even looking at them through the lens of our own lives, how much am I living a life of joy or of peace or of forbearance? If you are an extrovert, you may feel like, I, I do this. I am a person of joy. Or if you know how the world works, and it, then, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll put on my joy hat. I'll be an extrovert today. Your, your natural tendencies are not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. Because you can be a person who is an extrovert, Keller says, and also be a person full of anger. And so it's not a matter of saying, I have joy, I'm an extrovert. It's, am I growing in all of this? And that's why at it, it first pass, it might feel a little like semantics to go, well, this is one fruit, not a bunch of fruits. And, I, and I've slipped myself, even in this series, uh, if I got a fine every time I said the fruits, plural, of the Spirit, uh, you, you could probably get a cup of coffee because I grew up thinking that way. But the, the trouble with thinking that way is then it, it, it lets us off the hook in some areas, let's be honest. And and because this is so much unnatural to us in a lot of ways, it's good to be let off the hook sometimes. Right? Uh, just me? Okay. You're not sure? You don't want to move because you don't want me telling you to get a drink? That's fine. Um, so this morning, we're going to take a look at goodness. These are more than uh, good character traits that we should try to develop into the life of our kids. But they are that. But they're more than that. And so in the passage right before this, and, and Rachel touched on this a, a bit last week, and we looked at it more uh, a couple weeks back, that we are to move away from the old life that we've been dying in, Paul says, that me first, protect myself, feed my desires, uh, feed my passions. And actually, I kind of wished, you ever pick up a book after you're in the middle of a thing or you find the YouTube video that's showing you actually how to fix the dishwasher after it's all apart? And you're like, oh, I didn't need to take all of that apart. Anyone do that? Just me, <laughs> right? I wished I would have picked up this book when we started uh, the series. Because Keller does this beautiful job. And sorry, I'm, I'm gonna, we actually have a couple quotes we're going to quote too. It's just spilling. I'm narrating it. But um, Keller in this talks about passions and desires, which Paul talks about in Galatians 5. And the whole, he says, move away from your passions and desires, the things that lead you into the acts of the flesh. And then he gives the sin list, which is super uncomfortable. And, and on first pass, it's like, well, what's wrong with a passion? What's wrong with a desire? Like, if you've had a good teacher in your life, they said to you, follow your heart's desire. Do something you're passionate in, right? You're a painter. Be a painter. Do what you're passionate in doing. But Keller in this talks about, and he says, it's not so much just a desire that's off, although you could you could say it's desires that are connected to our sinful nature, and that's why they're off. But he says the better translation of desire is an over-desire. It's the over-desire for the things in the list of the stuff he says not to do. 
the stuff that usually gets preached and preached hard and preached long in church world because it's easy to go through the list of like, these are the sins and these are the things you are not supposed to do. But if our faith is only sin avoidance, as soon as we begin to feel all right about ourselves or as soon as we begin to get numb to the sin that we have in our lives, then we move away from that and we say there's no life in this. And so, but... What Keller says is that it's not just a desire or a passion in a way that God wants you to be passionless or have no desires. It's the putting them into the wrong place. It's the, we've all had this and we've all felt the shrapnel from somebody who is passionate about something and puts it into the wrong place. And then it spills off onto us. Or we've had it in our own lives where we have a desire or we have a passion and we haven't put it into its right place. And really what that is in the biggest sense of the word is idolatry. That we put something into the place that it is not rightfully supposed to be. And so, anyway, um, so the... The answer to that is not just don't do those things. It's to grow in this other and to be fruitful in this other. And, and we've looked at that. And just before this, we see two different ways Paul's saying, so I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires or the over-desires of the flesh. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but there's this great kind of two ends of the spectrum of this, right? There's the do whatever you want to do, gratify your passions and your desires, and then at the other end of that spectrum is to just clamp it all down and follow the law. So in this paragraph of Scripture, we have Paul going, don't just do whatever you want to do. That will lead to death. And also, don't think just rule following is the way to have a life of growing in Christ's faith. And it's, it's, it's not even just in the in-between of that. It's this whole other thing where he says it's not the law, it's not the rules, it's not empty religion, and it's also not do whatever you want to do. It's following the lead of the Spirit in our life. And when we sang that song this morning, Waymaker, I just I was in the back of the room and I'm like, this is a great song that's anthematic in the church, not just our church, but it's become a song. If you were to just uh, pick and choose a church, probably 50% you're going to hit it at least once a month. It's a moving song. It's inviting us into a truth. And so I'm in the back and doing what I usually do, and that was a quick, what scriptures attached to what we're singing? So just did a quick Google. I know I'm supposed to be singing, but in, in was interesting, and I don't know, maybe your brain is faster than mine and you already got into those spaces, but it was linked to come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. The message, and it's one of my favorite, only ones I really remember from the message as I memorize is, it's, I will show you the unforced rhythms of grace. This is the Jesus who we are growing to know and love and serve and follow. This is the one that the Spirit is pointing back to. This is the one that the Spirit is uh, calling us to live in step with. The unforced rhythms of grace. So I don't know what your week has looked like this week. Maybe it's been an incredible week. Uh, maybe it's been a week where it's all hit the fan. And now you have to clean up the fan. I don't know. But into wherever it is in that space, this is all still true. And so we are invited to not gratify the desires of the flesh. I have all this going on. I've got all this pressure. I've got all this stuff. Well, if we see the fruit of the Spirit being these isolated things that we grow in, well, I'm a person who loves, but I'm a person of anger. 
And if I can compartmentalize those, I can feel all right about my faith, even though I am rotten in this whole area that Jesus died on the cross to save me from. And so, walk by the Spirit. And also, firstborn rule followers. Following the law. You can do it. You can do it for a little bit. Some of you even know nine of the Ten Commandments. Or ten of the ten. And you could keep most of them. And you haven't killed anyone this week. But you know Jesus rocked all of that. When he said, hey, you've said don't kill anybody. And you went to Sabbath school. And it was don't kill anybody. And you memorized it. And that's awesome. But if you have hatred in your heart, you've already done it. And so it's not that, well, that's a whole other. We're doing great. Here's the trouble. When I don't preach multiple weeks in a row, there's lots of things in here to say. Um, so this is the beauty of this. The beauty of it. Now the other things is that this is a fruit And we've talked about this before, but one of the few things that I remember from uh, being a youth pastor going to camp, uh, well, I remember a lot of things, but one of the few sermon things I remember from one of the camp things is one of the camp speakers said, we have this idea of somehow we're going to force the fruit to grow. And I know in our kind of hydroponic world, we can force things to grow outside of its normal time, right? And that's okay. But even with your best setup, with your best UV lights, with your best filtration, water going, doing the things, you can't, like, go from seed to fruit in a day. And there is a growth process that has to happen that you can, you can hinder and you can help, but you can't control. And it's the same in our lives. It's interesting, and it shouldn't be lost on us because Paul is very specific in the way he builds imagery that he comes back to this and calls this fruit. And in fact, in the word goodness that he uses, he circles back and calls it fruit another time in Second Thessalonians and links it to the idea of fruitfulness in Romans. Now, I am not a farmer, I don't grow things besides mold on things I've forgotten to throw away. I just don't. That's not all the way true. I have one house plant that I've discovered is a house tree, and it's growing like amazing things, and so I feel really good about it. But that's about it. If you want to know in the Fiedler house who grows things, it's Sophie. She's into succulents right now, and they are literally everywhere. They're like trebles, and they're just was a really good Star Trek reference for <laughs> there's trouble with them and their tribbles. Okay, never mind. Back to the notes. Um, you can't force this to grow. You can hinder it, but you can't force it. You can help it, but you can't do it on your own. And there's peace for us as followers of Christ in that because you may be looking at your own story going I've been at this a while and I still feel like I'm dealing with patience or I've been at this a while and I don't know that my first response is always love and is this even working Um, yes it is Because the thing about the imagery of fruit is it's not dependent on you. You can hinder it, but it's not dependent on you. And the reality is, is that God in his time is growing these things in you. And so we are growing in this fruit. Trying to, okay, sorry. Getting ahead of myself. Here we go. Let's do a quote. That'll help. Tim Keller. This is again from that book, Galatians for You. 
If someone has the Spirit in them, if they are a Christian, the fruit will grow. Now, I know this is a little Reformed, and this is a little Calvinist. For those of you who want to get into some theology, we're not Calvinists. We're not Reformed here. Or, or I don't know if we are. Uh, but, no. But there's truth in this. It's inevitable. This is encouraging to us as we think of how marble-like our sinful nature is. Before this, he uses the, the, uh, just a parable story of someone very wealthy who was uh, buried and died buried. Uh, and when was buried, an acorn fell in. To, and then a slab of marble was put above and then forgotten. And how this acorn grew and then split through a crack in the marble, even though, see, we have this where we think, we think of how marble-like our sinful nature is. It's never going to change. It's permanent. But it is also challenging. This reality that fruit will grow, it forces us to ask, if we've been Christians for a few years or more, is there fruit growing in my life? And this is the kicker. We are saved by faith, not by works, not by growing fruit, okay? Saved by faith, saved by faith, 100%. Not by growing fruit, but we are not saved by fruitless faith. A person saved by faith will be a person in whom the fruit of the Spirit grows. You are not in control of that growth. You can hinder it. You can help it, but it is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your will. And the other side of that is that it does need to be growing. And so here's the thing in this, and this isn't to lay a heavy burden on you, and don't worry, I'm on page three of four and two-line page notes. The good news in this is that when we surrender our lives to Christ, when we then the Holy Spirit is at work and present and seals us. And then the Holy Spirit is working in us to produce fruit. And so because we're not in charge of the timing of this, you might look at your life and go, I am not actually more loving, more forgiving, more patient, more kind, more meek, more forbearing. And yet when it hits in your life, Are you undone the same way you were before you came to know Christ? Or are you undone the same way you were five years ago? It's one of the really good reasons for a Christian to keep a journal. Not because, well, first of all, we're all ADD and none of us pray really well. And so writing it down helps. But also, going back into a journal or a commonplace book reminds you of where you were and who you were. Because this change of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, it's, and we say this all the time, I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but it's true. It's, it's sometimes like an avalanche that changes the landscape temporarily. But more lasting, it's the glacier that is this slow move. Because out of everyone, God has the longest game in mind. And so, who are you right now when it hits? And is it the same? Are you going back to those same self-medicating things? Are you going back to the bottle? Let's be just blunt. Are you going back to the shopping? Are you going back to the browser? To just a little? Are you going back to the, uh, the entertainment section of your news feed, and just, I wonder what J-Lo's up to now. Oh, Ben Affleck again, that's really weird, and really concerning that I knew that. (laughs) See, 
this is where, if we rewind back up into the scripture of Galatians 5, Paul gives us a list, but the list isn't the issue. It's the over-desire of those things that should be rightly in line with who God is. Can you have a drink? I don't know you. I don't know your tendencies, your addictive natures or not. The legal follow the law says no. The go after the passion of your life says yeah. The walking in step with the Spirit says, God, you know me. What should I do? For you or not. And here's the grandest litmus test of them all. Amy and I were just talking about this week, and it hit me, and it's my new, I don't know. Can what you are doing be done for the glory of God and for his honor? And if it can't, get it out. Get it out. All work that you do, Paul talks about, it being done is unto the Lord. So doing the dishes, do it unto the Lord. Changing out the tire, do it unto the Lord. Balancing the checkbook, whatever, fill it in. But if the thing, it can't be done unto the Lord and can't be done for his glory, get it out. Get it out. Because it is in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life. And this isn't a just you, Jonathan Edwards yelling at you, sinner in the hand of an angry God. This is me. I have to gut check. Where am I at with this? How is this going? Just this week, Amy and I were talking, and I was like, you know what? Uh, I am... So far behind on my, I'm taking my pastor hat off and I'm just being Jason for a second. Don't yell at me. I am so far behind on my personal Bible reading. Have you ever looked at your Bible app that's helping you and it's double digits behind of the Bible? No, I have. It's super fun. And okay, I got to get back going. Out of guilt? No. Out of love. Out of knowing this is the thing that is renewing my mind. And so this isn't a, I'm awesome, come on up here to my high elevated mountain. We are all in process together. And so when you look at those areas in your life and you look at these gifts, not gifts, sorry, fine, Jason, when you look at this fruit, And you're like, I don't know. There's two voices that can come to the surface. One of them is you stink. Who do you think you are? You're no good. God's had enough. And that is not the voice of the one who loves you, who knows you, who has what is best for you who is working for you in ways you don't know, who is light in darkness, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the voice of the enemy, either yourself the enemy or the ultimate enemy of your soul, Satan. Or is the voice one saying, all right, now let's do this. I have this for you, and these are good things. So goodness Don't worry, that wasn't all intro. I mean, it was. (laughs) What do you think of when you think of goodness? What comes to mind? Hmm? Doing the right thing, love? My wife. Let's take the offering and go home. (laughs) It's good. That's good, because that's the follow-up question to this. Who do you see goodness in? In church, one of the reasons we gather together, it's not just to be entertained for an hour and a half on a Sunday. There's better entertainment. It's that we might do life together to be encouraged by others' story, 
to see things in other followers of Christ who are also walking this path, who have failed and found grace, who are in the midst of turmoil and trusting, who are at the edge and just holding on with fingernails. And so it's not wrong for when you think, who do you think of when you think of goodness? So Webster says goodness is the quality of being morally good or virtuous. The theologians say goodness in a biblical sense is uprightness of heart and life. The Greek word uh, agathosune, close, right, Norm? No, okay. Is we, we <laughs> translate as goodness or integrity. And it's, Keller says, being the same person in every situation rather than a phony or a hypocrite. This is not the same as always being truthful, but not always being loving. Goodness is not being truthful in every situation without being loving. The fruit are not separatable. Gifts are separatable. Natural tendencies are separatable. Goodness is truthfulness and love together. It's not just getting stuff off your chest to make yourself feel or look better. Well, thanks, Tim. How many times have I found myself in this thinking I was crushing it on goodness and yet nursing some bitterness? And it's not that I'm not a child of God in that setting. This isn't about salvation. This is about coming into who he created you to be, which is being shaped into the likeness of Christ. Not that you are a little Christ or a little Savior, but that you are, being, you are a reflection of who he is. Now, if we had a lot more time, we would turn and we would read a scandalous story in Luke chapter 7. Can I invite you to read this in its entirety at some point today or this week? Luke 7, there's a story similar to it. Some scholars say it's the same story. Other scholars say it's not the same story. It doesn't matter. Matthew records an also anointing story of Jesus. But Luke records the details very, very differently. In Luke chapter 7, we have this, and as it starts to go, you'll remember, but Jesus was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house, and they reclined at a table. So a common table in the center, everyone would kind of lean into the table with your feet out, not sitting in chairs, all dignified. And so you'd reach into the table, kind of reclined and feet out, and and. And while this dinner was going on, and this would have been a common thing, if there were teachers, itinerant teachers or uh, uh, rabbis going around the area, if you had means and wanted to elevate your social status, you would invite them over, and it would happen in such a way that the windows were open so people could see. And so Jesus gets invited over to this Pharisee's house, and and that doesn't automatically mean he's a black hat just because he's a Pharisee, but he gets invited over. But there was a woman who was lived a sinful life, and she learned that Jesus was eating there at the Pharisee's house. So she came with a, a jar of perfume, which would have been used in her trade, we'll say, because there's uh, kids in the room. No, you know. So this jar of perfume would have been used in her trade that she would have given to the folks who came to see her for her trade. And she took this, which was so incredibly expensive, and then she comes up to Jesus and with her hair, which in the ancient culture, a woman's hair is an extension of her uh, deepest sense of who she is, which was only for her husband. Okay, getting it? And so for her to anoint Jesus with this perfume that was for her trade, with her hair, which is... It culturally connected to the things of her trade is scandalous. And yet she comes up because she knows who Jesus is and she knows who she is. 
and she anoints him. And then the Pharisee turns on Jesus with the law. If you knew who this person was, if you were really a prophet, you'd know and you'd be like, get out of here. And then Jesus doesn't even talk to the Pharisee who's grumbling. Life lesson. He addresses the room to somebody who's teachable. Simon. And he says, hey, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, Simon says. Some folks owed money. One was more than the other. The one who forgave got forgiven. The more, who do you think is more aware of the debt forgiven? And Simon's like, boom, I know the answer. The person who owed more. And Jesus is like, yep, you're right. And then he goes on and he calls out the thing going on in the room. He says, here's somebody who knows the depth of her need. And don't hear this as a patriarchal thing. In fact, what this is, is it's a reordering of the thing of society. And Jesus is seeing this woman and giving value to her when everyone else in the room only saw her as her trade. And so Jesus sees her and invites her into the moment with the windows open and people watching. And he commends her for what she's done. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven, which she did not ask for. And then the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You weren't allowed to do that. Sins weren't against you. You don't forgive sins. I don't forgive your sins. I'm just me. You, you may have hurt my feelings or wounded me. If you ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive you. But you're not, you're not sinning against me. If you come at me, you're not sinning against me if you're in sin. You're sinning against the Lord. And only the Lord can bring forgiveness and offer forgiveness. And they recognize this. And they're saying, who can... Is this this dude who thinks he can even do that? Only God himself can forgive sins. And then Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He doesn't even address their question. He's all in on her. Jay, what does this have to do with goodness? See, it would be easy to just preach just this story. And if we did, we would say, Jesus did this out in the open in front of everyone else. Maybe it was a teaching moment. Maybe he was using this person as a living story or wanted to get this point across or whatever. See, but Luke is beautiful in the way he crafts his stories. And so this week, dig into Luke chapter 7. And also this week, this one's a shorter one, dig in on Luke chapter 5. So in Luke chapter 5, it's just a super quick story. Jesus comes into a town. It doesn't say he's with everybody. It doesn't say there's a crowd. It just says he comes into a town. And when he comes into a town, a dude with leprosy hears he comes and comes up to Jesus and he says, uh, Lord, have mercy on me. And, and Jesus meets him there. The dude says, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus says, I'm willing to be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Go make sacrifice for it so that you can re-enter uh, your relationships in society. It wasn't a sin thing. It was a society relationship thing. And, Jay, why these two? What do they have to do with each other? This is Jesus being Jesus, full of goodness and grace and mercy, meeting a person, seeing a person, doing right for the person in private. Connect that to the scandalous story of the woman. Jesus meets her, sees her, gives her grace and mercy and goodness in public. Jesus is true. Jesus is showing goodness in who he is when people are watching and not watching. Goodness is this. To take the word goodness and bring it back into the Old Testament... And, and I don't know if this is 100%, so I might get marked down on my paper here, but goodness is the Old Testament wisdom. 
Wisdom in the Old Testament is knowing the right thing and doing the right thing for the right reason. Goodness is knowing the right thing and doing the right thing for the right reason. And if you do a word search on wisdom in the Old Testament, you're going to run into a couple things. Like a massive theme. God's people are to grow in wisdom. We are to be people shaped by goodness. Paul writing to the church for the second time, at least in 2 Thessalonians, says, with this in mind, we, his team, constantly praise for you, the church there, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer for the church then and it spills down to us now. I could give you a list of 25 things that you could do to do good things. If you go into the ancient world, last thought, you go into the ancient world and you look for this Greek word translated as goodness, you know where you're going to find it? Only in Scripture. Only. It's not in any of the other ancient Greek texts. This is not a Greek virtue. This is godly character. That is an extension of of who God calls his people to be through the whole arc of the Old Testament. This isn't a, you've been with me for a little while, now I'm going to zig when you thought I was going to zag. This is true to the character of God all the way back to the beginning when he created and said it was good. And so this isn't even, we could do a whole nother series, or a whole nother thing next week on all of the passages in Scripture that point to God's goodness. He calls us to live this because it is who he is. He causes the, the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He causes rain to fall on the good and the evil. He gives breath to the good and the evil. He created, one theologian says, flowers. You need a lot of things. You don't need flowers. And yet the goodness of God is a flower. This thing of beauty that you can get just lost into, that can bring joy, that you can tend and cultivate, that you can give as a gift. And that's a flower. You can get that at Pick and Save or your front yard or even a dandelion, kids. That's the goodness of God. That's not a random act of the universe. And so we serve a God who is full of wisdom and goodness. And I know I said that was the last thing. This is the last thing, point one. We echo the words of the psalmist. I know it's illegal to break apart Psalm 23. But this is the closing of the prayer of David that we repeat at funerals that we give in graduation cards, that we get tattooed on us sometimes, that we have in plaques in our house, that we know so much we don't even hear it. Surely your God, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you see God? God of wrath? Is he a God of rules? Is he a God that's angry at just one people group right now? Is he a God who really likes the colors of your flag and not the colors of someone else? Or is he the almighty maker of heaven and earth who is full of goodness and love? And so I don't know where you're at this morning in this, but let this just saturate. This has been the message for me all this week. I know I'm behind in my Bible reading. I'm working on it. We'll get caught up. Ask me next week. But in my reading and sitting down and being intentional, and this has been a week, I'll just say it. In my reading, there has been spaces where God has spoken to me through his word in the Psalms. 
Why? Because I'm awesome? No, actually. In fact, these are messages I should have had 44 days ago. That's how far behind I am. (gasps) And yet God, and in your life, know that he is a God of His goodness and love will follow you. That's a whole sermon in itself, will follow you. What a fun idea. You ever been followed? I mean, not in a weird way. That's weird. (laughs) But in a, like, fun way? You ever hung out with preschoolers who think you're cool and been followed? You ever like it when the dog follows? These aren't just your dog. This is so much more than somebody who only knows you as a big person. This is the God of heaven and earth. He will follow you. And so, God, we need you. Lord, we need you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your drawing out of us Lord, our overpassions and our desires, drawing them out of us like a poison, like a rattlesnake bite that you pull. God, help us to put to death our old self. And God, thank you that you are working in your people growing fruit. We could pass a mic this morning, Lord, and sing of speak of your goodness. You're working in our lives the way we've been able to go through something that in the past we wouldn't have been able to go through. And God, if we were like gut-wrenching real, we could also say the spaces where actually this isn't that much different than the other stuff. And how we need you in that space. God, thank you that there's not a, 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 a room in our heart that is so hoarded, cluttered with filth and garbage and sin that you say, I'll touch everywhere but there. God, thank you that your grace and your mercy are full and lasting. And so, Lord, we echo the prayer of David. May your goodness, may your love, your mercy follow us all the days of our life as we move to find ourselves in your house forever. Jesus, we need you. We might be good at this a little bit, but we're not awesome. Thank you that you are perfect. Work your work in us and through us. God, we just want to reflect you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.